whiteback vultures are considered critically endangered, just mostly because they're so susceptible to these poisons. And it just leads to very, very rapid declines for them because you're killing large numbers of birds at a time. Yeah. So it doesn't even have to be a lot of poisoning, just a handful of poisoning events a year can have catastrophic impacts. The chimpanzees in Uganda and the vultures in Tanzania, what do they both have in common? Well, they're both endangered species, and Dr. Corinne Kendall, curator of conservation and research at the North Carolina Zoo, has firsthand experience with both species, and she joins the podcast to give her insight into these magnificent creatures. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beat Head pulled down over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender Darling, you were meant to survive So, Corinne, I read something about you, and is it true that you wake up each morning and you check on the African white-backed vultures in Tanzania through the satellite tags you have? Yep. Yeah, so every morning I get an email telling me where the birds are and making sure that they're all still alive. That's really crucial. Um, <laughs> and and I can see how much they've moved in the last day. So I, that's how I start the day, is making sure that all the birds that we've tagged are still doing well and are uh, bopping around Africa. <laughs> that is the coolest way to start off your morning. You're probably one of the only people in the entire world that's like not like doing anything prior to checking their, um, getting their coffee or getting in the shower or getting ready for work. You're checking on your vultures that are out in Tanzania. Um, oh. Why, um, why vultures too? How'd you kind of like zero in on that? Yeah. So I um, like to think that I work on the underdog species. So animals that aren't well studied or aren't as charismatic. Um, but are still really important. So I I'd studied hippos previously, and then I got really interested in, in vultures. Um, and when I first started working on, on vultures um, in Kenya originally, we really didn't know a whole lot about how they were doing. There's some great work that was done on them in the 70s, but there hadn't been a lot of research more recently. And so through my work and um, several other people that have gotten more interested in vultures in the last uh, 15 years. Now there's a lot more research going on. And unfortunately, we've identified that vultures in Africa are declining really rapidly, and there's a lot of concern about them. So part of those satellite tags is checking to make sure the birds are alive, because the most common problem for vultures um, in Africa is poisoning. So people put out pesticides onto dead animals. So one scenario might be Someone's cow is killed by lions and they go out and put pesticides down on the cow carcass and that might kill the lions, but that could kill up to a hundred vultures. And are they trying um, to like, just get like revenge then on the, the predators you'd say? Yeah. So they want to get rid of the lion that killed their cow. Um, and in the past people might've gone out and speared those lions, but if you do that, you're much more likely to get caught. Poisoning is a very secret sort of cryptic activity. Um, and so it's become a popular way to kill carnivores um, and kind of go undetected. But yeah. with the vultures, we're able to see where those poisoning events are happening. So the, the tagging of these birds with satellite tags is really key uh, to better understanding the poisoning issue. 
Yeah, and poisoning has been used to kill off things that you don't want to get caught at. You know, it's like the the least risk with ensuring someone's going to die because I mean, you could even date back to the ancient Romans and people were killing, you know, emperors and people that and their inner en- enemies in the political circles by poisoning because then they, you know, they're they're least detected. Like with poaching, I mean, you get caught doing that out there. I mean, you're, you know, severe consequences. Yeah, no, and that's, um, you know, it's it's in most places, it's illegal to kill lions and hyenas, but when people lose cattle, they're they're frustrated, and so this is part of how they're responding. And But yeah, unfortunately, it's if it's happening in community areas, probably no one will find it or know about it, and this is part of why we've seen these precipitous declines in vultures that had largely gone unnoticed, because people aren't finding or seeing those poisoning events unless you're really, really looking for them. Um, and so that's what yeah we've we've been able to start doing um, initially in Kenya and now with the zoo in in Tanzania. Because vultures too, say they go and swoop in to eat up on a carcass. Um, you know, you're probably talking what there's could be what up to like ten to fifteen of them munching on that same carcass, and if it's all poisoned, you've one carcass has then killed a very good chunk of birds. Yeah, yeah even more than ten to fifteen. So yeah, at a cow carcass, you could have. Uh, 30 up to um, even 100. And then the other place where people are poisoning is poachers have recognized that the the flight of vultures coming down to the carcass and taking off and all that movement, that's one of the best ways to find uh, dead animals. And so what poachers do now on occasion is they'll put pesticides down on the elephant carcass. So while they're getting the tusks out, taking the ivory, they put those pesticides down. Mm. Now the vultures that come in feed and die rather than taking off and moving around. And that can kill several hundred vultures. There's been more than 800 vultures killed at um, some of these elephant poaching linked poisoning events. So that oh, has wow. really catastrophic effects on, on vulture populations. And I never knew like really the positives, the amount of positives that vultures bring because there's such like a negative stigma because of that famous metaphor of like, oh, you're, you're like a bunch of vultures, you know, right. like people use that all the time. But that by them eating off of these dead carcasses, they're really saving the rest of the world from the spread of rapid diseases. Because yeah. like the the wildebeest run where there's could be dozens, hundreds of wildebeest just laying out dead because of sickness, illness, predation, whatever. They're the ones going down to ensure to munch on them, obviously, but to ensure that there's not that spread of diseases from all of these dead carcasses. Because, I mean, they're like, it's like very sad. You don't see these images a lot of time on National Geographic because they're really like, you know, they don't want to kind of show that uh, those types of scenes. But it, yeah, the it, morbid scenes. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to do which I which I get. But um, you know, seeing all of them just laid out, it's, it almost looks like they're all massacred. But the vultures don't go in and actually eat them and recycle all of the possibilities of those diseases um, creating. I mean, you would have a massive amount of risk spreading to like local cattle and herdsmen and, and that rapid effect. Cause once those diseases start, I mean, forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, vultures are, they're, they're really, really effective scavengers. They're one of the few groups of species that can rely entirely on dead animals. Um, and they're also able to respond when there's big influxes in food. So you know, mammals like lions or hyenas, there's only going to be so many of them in an area. And so if you have a ton of animals die because of a disease outbreak, 
they're really not going to be able to manage that. But vultures are flying and they can fly 100 miles in a day easily. And that long distance movement allows them to respond when you have a disease outbreak so that they're, they're eating all of that additional meat, preventing diseases from spreading from one carcass to other living animals. Um, they also have a really, really acidic stomach. So they're able to eat um, they prefer to eat fresh meat, but they will eat rotten meat. So they can yeah, digest yeah. some pretty nasty bacteria. They can digest bacteria that cause various diseases. Um, and so that's part of how they're, they're helping to reduce disease risk. Yeah, I had talking with, it, it's always interesting because in the United States, we tend to have this very negative perception and idea towards vultures. They're, you know, they're associated with death. They're, they're kind of gross. But in uh, the communities that I've worked with in Kenya and Tanzania, I tend to have a much more positive understanding of, of vultures and their role. And one of my favorite quotes was someone described them as being the soap of the savanna. Um, and oh, I wow, think that's, that's a good, that's a very good insight. Yeah, it's such an, a nice way to think about them. That's what they are. They're, they're out there recycling and getting rid of the diseases. And, and I think in people that are living more closely with wildlife, there's this real appreciation of that role that vultures are playing. So they're not typically um, amongst communities, the vultures aren't what are the targets. It's that frustration with, with carnivores um, that, that leads to poisoning of vultures. Yeah, it's sad because they get like, uh, they're the ones doing like the leg work, like the devil's work, the ugly work, the nasty work. And then they, they're simultaneously the ones getting painted. Like in, um, I'd say almost like in media, it's like the vultures, like you said, the inclination of being involved with death and and circling over and um having that little like little creepy halloween type of vibes i guess i think because they are decorations on halloween a little bit vultures yeah, yeah. i guess yeah <laughs> yeah no I, we, we have a we have a decorative halloween vulture um yeah no i mean that's the that's kind of the association that we have with them and um but yeah there's that lack of broader understanding of the role that they're they're playing um, and how important they are for the ecosystem. So, yeah, that's one of the things that's made them really fascinating to to study and that makes them so important to protect. And are they endangered at all? Yeah. So most of the African vulture species are now considered critically endangered. Um, so oh, the, wow. Critically the, endangered. Wow. Yeah. The white-backed vulture that, that we do most of our work on, although kind of everything that we do is relevant for the whole scavenger guild and even for the, the carnivores and other animals that are, that are eating carcasses. But um, yeah, white-backed vultures are considered critically endangered, just mostly because they're so susceptible to these poisons, and it just leads to very, very rapid declines for them because you're killing large numbers of birds at a time. Yeah. So it doesn't even have to be a lot of poisoning. Just a handful of poisoning events a year can have catastrophic impacts because um, these are actually long-lived, really slow reproducing birds. We don't tend to think about them that way, but they don't lay an egg until they're about six years old. Um, and then they only lay one egg every year at most, and they probably aren't going to actually have an egg every year. It sort of depends on the conditions. So they're really, really slow reproducing. They're normally living 40, 50 years. So that's, you know, they need to have lots of eggs over their lifespan. But if we're killing them off um, as adults, which is what's happening, then the population really can't recover. No, and we'll, like it's like a mass casualty event those yeah. those poisons because you know you're talking you're taking out how many at, at one time with one carcass it's not like a you know a poacher even take i would say almost like poaching is like would be less 
critical to a species because they're taking out one or two at a time. But in these cases, you're taking out many and then harder to find the cause because there could just be like a serial poisoner out there that just like maybe lost her farm or something and now is is kind of going after everybody. And um, to give people a sense of really what an endangered species is, the I'm surprised that they're actually you said critically endangered, Yeah, critically endangered. Yeah. Wow, because you there's basically summarized and, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. You got basically seven different categories on the being on the red list of endangered species, which is a being least concern and then next being near threatened. And those, I guess, to, is it fair to say that that's really when scientists and researchers start taking note of, you know, populations and maybe creating like a little business model of like, all right, what should we help? do to kind of reshape to kind of put a cap on the decline because obviously they've been declining so let's put a cap on it first and then see how we can kind of regrow those numbers and then after that you can hit the you got least concern then you got near threatened then you become a vulnerable species which is the vultures are even way past this um and then endangered and then you hit critically endangered which critically endangered is the I would say the last, yeah. <laughs> the last step yeah. before really you're hitting extinction. complete, yeah, extinction and annihilation. Because after that, you're extinct in the wild, and then everybody yeah. else is, just, or all of those um, species are just basically in captivity, trying to really produce, and then you're officially extinct. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so. That's the vultures are declining really quickly. Um, so it's those different categories are based on the rate of decline uh, per. Uh, in relation to the generation length, so sort of in relation to how how quickly the species reproduces, um, and that's why vultures are are ranked so high because they're slow reproducing, but they're declining very quickly. Oh, and that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. Jeez, critically indeed. I didn't think that they were that bad. I thought they were more in like the vulnerable stage. I didn't no, know that that's at all. everything in in West Africa in particular. We've got almost the complete disappearance of vultures in a lot of places. Um, and then East and Southern Africa just have suffered very, very rapid declines. But um, it's it's one of these interesting things. And this was kind of similar to the, the case in Southeast Asia when vultures declined there. These are really populous birds. You know, normally you're seeing, you see them at a carcass where there's going to be lots of them. But just because you see lots of vultures at a carcass doesn't mean there are lots in the habitat because yeah. potentially those 50 birds you're seeing could have come from 100 miles away. And so it, there's a little bit of this sort of false feeling about it. Um, they, they seem like they're still uh, present because when you look at the carcass, you see them. But when we use other methods for counting them, whether that's nest surveys or counting them along the road, um, or when we look at things like mortality rates um, for the tagged birds, where we're able to get a sense of how rampant the poisoning issues are in a, in a landscape, that's where we see that, that we're talking about really high declines. Um, yeah, I mean, we're estimating 25, 30% annual declines in some of the areas that we're working, which is, yeah, really, really catastrophic. Yeah, I can imagine. My gosh, because vultures, I guess, would be the ones that, I mean, if they were to go extinct, people really wouldn't take notice like they would like uh, if a rhino or a panda goes extinct, you know, but they wouldn't notice until all of a sudden there's all these health problems in communities and in animals. And all of a sudden there's just like a lot of carcasses just laying around, you know, they're yeah. kind of like the, I don't know, 
if it's safe to say like the garbage the garbage people of the <laughs> yeah. yeah no that's their their uh yeah they're the the garbage workers and yeah i mean this was how i got interested in vultures is um in, in southeast asia they lost almost 99 percent of three of their vulture species in about a 10-year time period mm. And uh, it's a totally different cause. There, it was actually related to a veterinary drug that was being given to cattle. Um, and because cows are often left out in India for, for scavengers to consume, um, the vultures were eating those and they were getting exposed to this diclofenac, this um, anti-inflammatory drug, and it caused kidney failure. But the, those vulture populations went from millions of birds down to just a few thousand in this very short time period because the, the birds are aggregating when they feed. And, um, but it took a while for people to even recognize the declines. And then it took a while to figure out what was happening because nobody mm. knew about this connection um, between vultures and certain um, anti-inflammatory drugs. So it took a while to kind of figure out what was happening in that scenario. And really it took too long. Like it, it will be, 50 to 100 years before those populations are back to what they were. And in the meantime, um, and this is the same challenge in Africa, the, the exchange, the other scavengers you're gonna get if you lose vultures are gonna be things like flies and bacteria yeah. and feral dogs. And those are all things that spread disease. And that was what happened. So India went from 2 million to 9 million feral dogs over that 10 year time period. And that led to a lot of rabies outbreaks, not just amongst the dogs, but also amongst people. Well, because so, now, now you have just a, a huge increase in invasive species. I know um, rats and, and mice, especially on islands, and, and so become very invasive when those types of things happen because they just spread diseases really quick and start killing off anything that's even remotely um, categorized as vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, we see in, in a lot of the African savanna ecosystems, there's already interactions happening between feral dogs and wild carnivores, and that can lead to rabies outbreaks or canine distemper or other issues. So it's a real concern for carnivores. And if there's more food for dogs, if, if you've lost your vultures, then there's potentially going to be more dogs, more of that kind of yeah. disease outbreak. But in, in India, they estimate it to be about 34 billion wow. um, over that 10 year time period in, in sort of costs from human health costs, the waste disposal costs uh, that, that are incurred by not having those vultures. Well, vultures must have a skill that not many species anywhere across the world have where they're able to break down that amount of bacteria in their digestive system that has been sitting on meat because you're talking these carcasses are laying out in in Africa in the open in, in the sun yep. and they're going down and eating it and digesting it healthy and recycling it out. That is, yep. I mean, their digestive system should be like <laughs> studied because that is insane. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually, we did a little bit of work trying to look at um, how they're handling the bacteria that they're exposed to, whether it's through their immune system or through their digestive system. And it looks like hyenas actually have some really interesting immunity. Vultures just have a really um, acidic stomach. And they're also, a lot of the time they're eating mammals. And so there's some diseases like rabies and canine distemper that birds don't get. So they have mm. that benefit of um, yeah, effectively not being susceptible to some of the diseases of the animals that they're eating. So yeah, all of that makes them really critical, but it's also just, 
the, the numbers and because they're so mobile, vultures use soaring flight. So they can fly really long distances and use almost no energy. Once they get up into a, a nice thermal, into that warm air, it just carries them all over the place. And so they can search over large areas and they can respond when there's something going on in a particular area. And that makes them really key to that decomposition process because um, they can handle these big influxes um, in, like you were talking about with the wildebeest, you can have several hundred wildebeest die every day uh, during the migration. So in Mara Serengeti, you've got about 1.2 million wildebeest moving around. And during the height of the dry season, you have hundreds of them dying. And the carnivores can't respond to that, but vultures can, because you mm. attract in vultures from almost across the whole country of Kenya they come into Masai Mara during that time period to take advantage of that influx in food. And they're the only group of animals that can do that. Well, the, um, the poisoning of the vultures too remind me, cause it's like almost like, um, like secondhand poaching where they're not like the intended victims necessarily of the initial, um, killing of an animal, but they are end up being victims of it. It reminds me of the chimpanzees in Uganda where, Although they're protected, um, there's still poachers that are putting out traps for, say, elephants to then collect the ivory from the elephants. And these chimpanzees, although protected, too, are in the wild and then they step on one or get caught in a wire and then they struggle. And these traps are meant to the more you struggle, the tighter the wire gets and it ends up maiming them. You know, yeah. take it, you know, taking off their hands, their limbs, their arms, and they may die or they may then be literally handicapped in the wild, which then, I mean, you're talking, how hard is it to survive there? Anyway, imagine being a handicapped chimpanzee without a, without a hand or a leg. Imagine that. And, uh, I, it reminds me of that because they become like secondhand unintended victims of poaching, which is, yeah. it's, you know, it's very sad to see because chimpanzees also too are, on, you know, de declined and, and protected yeah. for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. So in, um, in Uganda, where we work on chimps, like you said, it's people don't eat chimpanzees, um, but people put out snares. So these, these wire um, loops, basically, that when an animal steps into them. So usually they're, they're mostly trying to hunt um, antelope species, dikers and things like that, that people would consume but chimps also end up in those snares. And at the peak of, of snaring, uh, it was estimated that almost a third of the chimpanzee population had some kind of snare wound, whether that was missing a whole hand um, or, or, or a finger or other kinds of um, scars from, from those interactions with snares. So it, it can have a really big effect on, on chimpanzee populations. And so, yeah, in Uganda, what we've done is tried to work with the community to help people find alternatives, um, ways to, to not be cutting down trees and, and affecting the habitat where the chimps live, and then ways to avoid snaring and have other, um, other means. So that's been really effective because we've worked with teachers and teachers are such incredible influencers, not just of their students, but even of the whole community, especially in Uganda, teachers are really well respected. They're often some of the more educated um, groups in the population. And so people will listen and teachers in Uganda are willing to try new things. 
And that also has been great because it's a, it's a way to make change that can so often be such a struggle. Um, but we've been able to see people try new things, new ways of cooking food that reduces how much wood they need, using bees to um, help pollinate their gardens, but also produce and sell honey. Um, things like that that really make a difference for the communities living on the edge of these protected areas. Yeah, it's got to be tough because do you find, because I only can view this when I read something on the internet. I've never been over there myself, so I don't have like that primary research. But from your your perspective, are you finding, because I know the will to hunt for bushmeat has really affected species and has created certain species in becoming vulnerable. Do you find that the people around Uganda and the Congo especially that are consuming bushmeat, do you feel that it's more of like out of like a necessity um, and that's what's causing people to go out and um, and find bushmeat or do you find that it's they're doing it more out of like a, a luxury? Yeah, so I think it, it depends a lot on where you are. Um, yeah. yeah, certainly I think more like Nigeria and, and Western Africa, a lot of the bushmeat is is more of a luxury. Sometimes bushmeat's even more expensive than you know, than eating cow or goat or other domestic animals. Um, in other places, I think in Uganda, it's it's more subsistence. Um, so just needing those other sources of protein, like around Kabale National Park, where where we work with communities and where the chimps are, um, most people don't have a lot of domestic animals. So just having other sources of protein can be important. Um, so it's definitely, it can be a mix. Uh, it's all very, very location dependent um, in terms of how kind of bushmeat fits into the general economy. But there's definitely situations where it's it's an industry, it's commercial. Um, a lot of bushmeat moves through um, big hubs like Nigeria um, and there's a real market for it there. And so that can drive a lot of demand even in neighboring countries and sort of could be causing that broader decline. And was that a huge contributor with uh, the decline in the chimp population or also um, habitat loss? Yeah, I mean, I think in Uganda, the the bigger, it's, it's, it's a combination. So the snares are a problem, but because the chimps aren't being targeted, at least, there's not that kind of commercial industry like you might find yeah. in, in Congo. Um, so the habitat loss is a big issue. And, you know, you have uh, very dense human populations living along the edge of these forests. And so giving people ways, al alternatives, especially for fuel wood, um, you know, most people are still mm. cooking on a, on a wood stove. That's a good point. And so finding Maybe. ways to avoid cutting down trees, um, to not be going into the forest, even to, to collect firewood, which can be a very time consuming activity and also, um, dangerous when you have things like elephants in those forests. And so coming up with, um, alternatives, um, or ways to reduce how much wood is needed, like these fuel efficient stoves that we help teach uh, the teachers who then help teach their students in the community how to build is a good way to reduce that, that impact. Um, and it's been really amazing. We've had students not only really master the skills of building these fuel efficient stoves, but even kind of show some entrepreneurial spirit and make it into their own business. So they'll actually sell stoves to other members of the community. And we see even more rapid um, adoption of this new new behavior through things like that.
Oh, it's, so it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say it's it, it would be tough to like it, you, you're not allowed to poach chimpanzees. That's like a huge win. Right. But then if people are needing wood to fuel their houses, then yeah. you go into the forest and destroy, you know, and you're taking down trees. You're yeah. then I mean, you're not directly <laughs> poaching the chimpanzees. Right. But if you are rapidly taken away where they live and especially more importantly, the fruit that grows on those trees. Well, that they absolutely live off of, then I mean, it's just like a a much slower decline. I didn't think about how how secondary that could be. Yeah, no, I think you know charcoal is a big issue um, across Africa because people need need it for for cooking and for heat, and so finding ways to reduce that demand is really really critical to protecting pretty much any forest habitat. Yeah, and you've se- seen chimps up close and personal, right? Yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> that is awesome. I I read and how how close and accurate is this that uh, we share or not share, um, but our DNA is relatively about ninety eight percent closely related to chimpanzees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not that much that really differentiates us, and they're <laughs> yeah, they're really wild. amazing to to see up close. They're they're very powerful. Um, but they're very conscientious and social. I've watched uh, a male chimp sort of playing with with a, an infant and just kind of picking it up and stretching it out and um, moving moving it around in the way that that we would pick up our own children. So, yeah, chimps are really really incredible to watch up close. They're a little bit scary because they're definitely powerful and very capable yeah. of being destructive. Um, but they're, they're just really like humans, to... just like humans. Yeah, no, they're definitely <laughs> they're very similar to us that way. They're not the the gentle giants that gorillas are. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. when you're when you're next to a chimpanzee, do you have that like human sense about them? Do you sense like when you're talking next to a, a human being at a coffee shop or anything? And do you do you sense like that they're there is that soul right in their body and they're looking back at you and you're connecting in a way that's very social. And it's almost like that sixth sense where you feel like there's another person right there. Like it's not necessarily like an animal, like a, like a cat or a dog, but you're staring into their eyes or you're looking at each other and you sense that they're sensing right back at you that you both are realizing you're both in each other's presence. Do you ever have that like sense? Yeah, no, I think chimps, when when you're watching chimps, the chimps are also watching you. Um, and they're they're so attentive to what we do and to our behavior. At, at the zoo, we often have cases where you see, you know, people interacting with their kids and the chimps are are interested in engaging in that social interaction in their own way. And when yeah, when we see them in the when I've seen them in the wild in Uganda, you know, they're, they're curious, they come up and they want to look at you. And I've had um, an infant chimp that was, it would run up and then just as it got close, it would get scared. So it would grab onto a little tree and kind of swing itself around and then run back to the other, the rest of the chimp troop. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of play and curiosity is very human. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with them, it's so fascinating that like when they're, grooming with each other too how highly socially intellectual they are because it reminds me of humans in like our clicky ways because 
chimpanzees really only groom with people that they kind of want to share like a social status with or a rank or kind of look up to. And that's like kind of their way of like mingling in to uh to a a friend group that they want to and like it's creates bonds in those relationships and it reminds me of humans because we're the same way because it like reminds me of um like a corporate dinner right like our corporate happy hour where after work certain people go out together get drinks from that company and share thoughts and experiences and the only people that go are people who want to become part of that clique and they bond and socialize with each other And they're very intentional with it, just like chimps are, where chimps will only groom with somebody that they kind of want to adopt into their inner circle. And they're very intentional on not grooming with certain people that they do not want to share a social interaction with or be seen with. And we're like the same way, because at a happy hour, we'll specifically and very intentionally include people and not include people. And it's all really to benefit our own little social circle and it's wild that that is the way that chimps share that and try to climb their own social ladder in the wild um because it it just shows just how incredibly similar we are yeah no it's 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 really interesting at at our at north carolina zoo we actually have a chimp named named kendall not named after me um but (laughs) uh, who's been here for a long time and kendall was an entertainment chimp so he came from this very unusual circumstance and not a great circumstance of of having been around um, for most of kind of his early years and so he'd learned a bunch of weird behaviors he would smile when he was happy which for a chimp when you show your teeth that's actually really aggressive Mm. um and so he had all these human-like behaviors that he'd learned from being around people and so when he finally got big enough and aggressive enough that you couldn't have him around people and um we wanted to integrate in that social interaction so important but we had to find the right chimps that were going to accept him because he had all these weird behaviors and he didn't act like other chimps and not every chimp is going to be amenable to that. Um, and so, yeah, he ended up kind of befriending one of the chimps in our troop and our, our staff did an incredible job of being able to integrate this chimp back into a chimp troop um, wow. so that he could still have those, those social interactions with his own species that are much more, more healthy and appropriate. Um, but it took time to be able to, to see that transformation and for him to be able to learn from other chimps how he should behave um but yeah there's just like you're talking about it's it's all social hierarchy and interactions and there are only certain chimps that that were willing to kind of befriend him early on um and so it's just been amazing kind of watching the building of that structure and yeah. and the, the technique that our keepers have to use to figure out how to to, in, to have that kind of integration safely and, and animals that can definitely hurt each other um, but where that social interaction is so key and it's, yeah, it's the same with, with human dynamics, right? We're, we're not always so nice to each other and it's, it's kind of finding those, those key friends in your life that, um, that give you that social fulfillment and yeah, chimps have the same struggles. Yeah, they do. And they, they, I feel like they also use it and manipulate it to their advantage because they're very smart in that yeah. aspect to be able to climb that social ladder, just like human beings do um so it really is a fascinating it's almost like a dips into their taps into that sense of survival of trying to grow um are chimps speaking of befriending um chimps are we able to like domesticate 
chimps at all? Are they able to be domesticated as like pets through training or anything? Or no, that's just a huge rumor. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge is that they're they're when usually when you see chimps in movies, they're they're babies, and when they're young, you can handle them and and have them. And there are chimps that have effectively been raised by people, but once they get to a certain age, it's it's sort of like when when we all reach puberty. You know, they're big and aggressive. They're much stronger than us. They can bite people. They're not something that that you want to have as a pet. And um, so there's really just that limited window when they can be used in the entertainment industry, but then you end up with like Kendall, these, these sort of inappropriately behaved chimps that don't know how to interact with other chimps. And a lot of those chimps won't find a, a good home, won't find a good troop to live with. And um, kind of the, the long-term experience for an entertainment chimp can be very sad because of that so yeah they don't they're not really something we can habituate there's there's a limited window when you can interact with them like that but then you've damaged them in terms of their ability to interact appropriately um yeah and eventually they just become they're just very aggressive you know they want to climb the social ladders and they can do that through aggression and if you're part of their social structure you better watch out. So yeah, it's, it's not a great thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've been very lucky at this institution to have been able to help a chimp like that. Yeah. And speaking of the zoo too, you guys have some amazing, some amazing animals. I mean, the, the elephant, the lion, alligators, I mean, you have like everything <laughs> just, just take Africa and put it into the North Carolina zoo. Cause that's basically <laughs> all yeah. of Africa. Cause you guys have so much there. Um, what um because you have the rhinos the red wolf what would you say is like the most endangered species that you do have because i feel like if there's any zoo in the country i don't i haven't looked at every zoo in the country but if the amount of endangered species you have just from a quick scroll <laughs> you have so many there yeah. yeah we definitely have a lot of endangered species i mean obviously the red wolf there's only a few hundred of them in existence and probably only about a dozen of them left in the wild so that's definitely going to be high up on there um, the zoo actually does some work with a, a boa constrictor that's from uh, oh, wow. the Virgin Islands, so the Virgin Island boa. Um, that's a species that we know so little about, and we really don't know how many of them there are. Um, and we have a few of those at the zoo that we're trying to kind of breed and, and help build up those populations and build up that knowledge of, of what those snakes need. Um, so that actually might be one of the, the more endangered ones. Um, Puerto Rican crested toad is another kind of unusual one that um, we do a lot of breeding with them and we're able to release little Mm. either tadpoles or little froglets but with some of the hurricanes um, that Puerto Rico has had they've lost a lot of the habitat for those toads so they're another really crucial one but yeah no we're very lucky to have um, an amazing collection of, of African and North American animals we're working on building a whole new Asia section Um, But yeah, I think probably one of the most unique things we have at the zoo is a a mixed species exhibit in Africa where we have rhinos living with kudu and oryx and all these different antelope species. And that exhibit is 40 acres, um, which is bigger than a lot of other zoos in this country. So it's really amazing. We have a lot of space here for our animals, which is part of why I'm proud to work for North Carolina Zoo. No, it's it's amazing uh, everything that goes into that with providing the right type of habitats too. Because you guys have polar bears too. 
Yep. Yeah, we have polar bears. That's yeah. insane. To have yeah. all in one, under one roof. Now, I want to get your insight into the behind the scenes on this because I was just at the Tampa Zoo, like, I'd say like five months ago, right? And and they have rhinos, giraffes, I mean, a, a lot of African um, species there. And me being down in Florida, I'm just thinking, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what do they do during a hurricane? <laughs> Where do they put these animals? And then yeah. now there is a actual hurricane hitting Tampa actually, yeah. actually this week. And I'm thinking... Oh my gosh, that zoo, what are they going to, where do they put the rhinos? Where do they put the giraffes? Like, cause you can't just like open a door and say, yeah, yeah, go, uh, you know, go in the basement with each other and, and huddle up and, and, you know, be safe. Cause you have to have everything so meticulously planned out just to protect them and, and ensuring that they don't get out because imagine a rhino getting out there in a freaking hurricane. I mean, from an inside, um, perspective from your thought if you were to tampa zoo right now or if you guys have have gone through that up in uh, north carolina what are some of the things you guys do there yeah so yeah most zoos have sort of hurricane or um adverse weather plans um and those include things like indoor areas so we don't often see it when you visit a zoo but pretty much every animal at that zoo is also going to have some kind of indoor space so obviously we get everything inside uh, when we're going to have some kind of severe weather in some cases, zoos can move animals between institutions. So for ah. some of the, the red wolves that are housed in more coastal institutions, they actually will bring them to our zoo um, if there's a big hurricane coming. So sometimes there's some ability to move animals around like that. Um, a lot of institutions, this is particularly important for aquariums, will have backup generators so that if you lose power, you know, aquariums have to have um, pumps and all of their filtration systems going all the time. So if they lost power for an extended period in a hurricane, they could lose all their fish. Um, so having backup generators is really critical uh, during those kinds of events. So yeah, zoos try to take careful planning and consideration for the animals. It's It can be very challenging depending how severe the storms and, and things are, but but zoos usually have a variety of kind of backup options yeah. to be able to adjust during those situations. I'll tell you, the people running zoos should be running the government's response to hurricanes because you would never hear of a problem <laughs> with a zoo or an animal getting out during a hurricane. And they they do perfect jobs because yeah. the amount of things that they have to do during those hurricanes and you never hear of a problem and you know, there's always problems with responses to hurricanes from like local governments and stuff. And the people running zoos should really just take over during that time because <laughs> they really know what they're doing. Yeah, no, I definitely, we do a lot of emergency planning. There can be some unique <laughs> scenarios when you work in a zoo. Um, and so, yeah, zoos tend to have uh, a lot of drills and, and practices. We even do animal escape drills. So sort of prepping for, for how oh, wow. we handle those kind of situations. So yeah, we try to be as prepared as possible. Yeah, a lot of things you, people don't think about when they just, you know, they 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 go in to pay the entry ticket to go see the the gorillas and the rhinos. Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's so much that yeah that you don't really see in terms of how the animals are yeah. are cared for. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing stuff. And uh, Corinne, where can um people obviously if they're they can find you guys at the North Carolina Zoo? Is there anything like online they can they can find you guys on and and get some research to learn more about the conservation efforts that you guys do? Yeah, definitely. So our, our website has a lot of great information about um, all of our different conservation projects. 
if people want to donate, the zoo is actually, we're a state-run institution, but we have a nonprofit partner um, through our North Carolina Zoological Society, which also has their own website and information on, on uh, projects and, and ways to support them there. Oh, do you guys do any live cams for the animals? Um, I don't think we have any that are publicly available. We did, uh, during COVID, we did a lot of educational okay. um, videos. We had a whole uh, education um, yeah. series that, that was done here through our education department trying to give. And actually, those videos are still available through our Facebook page and also through the website. Um, yeah, and give you a sense of some of that behind the scenes uh, experience that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome stuff. You should, um, I'd, I'd love to, if you guys ever thought about shaking up the live cam, I would so suggest that because I think that is the coolest thing when when anybody at any time can log into your website and go check on like, like um, Greg the Rhino or something. I don't right. know. If, yeah, but... yeah. <laughs> yeah we thought a... about doing that for some of our, our satellite tagged birds too, like oh, being yeah. able to follow a check-in on, on the vulture and where it's going and, and um, everything that way as well. That would be super cool. Um, yeah. That would be awesome. I uh, would love to check in with you down the road, Corinne, and uh, check in on the red wolves. Hopefully their population has increased a little bit along with the vultures the chimpanzees and uh, you know I, I could really name off every single um animal off the list i feel like the zoo should just be called endangered species north carolina zoo because you guys have so many there so thanks so much for all this info uh corinne and um looking forward to seeing you down the road thanks yeah thanks so much <laughs>